Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify black letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. I put my head down and I focused on this for a solid year. I consumed everything I could about digital marketing. I looked at all the metrics. I asked a ton of people, a ton of questions. And over that course of time, I realized that digital marketing was actually more valuable than the service that we were providing to build the thing that we were marketing. And so we quickly transitioned to become 100% digital marketing. We've been 100% digital marketing for the last four years. And we've also branched off and created a couple of different agencies for niche industries for niche needs. So how did you determine uh, to make that shift? Was it revenue-based? Was it client, like client volume-based? Like what was it that made that shift for you? Because I think that to listeners might be interesting. How do you figure out my business is doing well, but here's a better sector for me where I could do much better. And, and you have to, there has to be some turning point where you have a realization and something has to lead to that. Yeah, th there were a couple of things. So, so before we made the decision or before we even realized that we were about to make the decision, I had a real good inkling and intuition that marketing was more valuable to businesses in general than, than the thing that we built. Uh, so for me, uh, I had plateaued in the business and, and I knew that I had reached basically saturation for my network. And so the challenge for me was getting the word out about my offering beyond my network. Right. And so that required okay. marketing. So for me, it required marketing to advance the company. And then since we were doing some of those marketing services at the time, this is probably six, seven years ago, we knew that clients gravitated to that pretty quickly. They very much wanted that. And that was, that was an, a, an expense that they liked to spend. And it was also in their budget. Whereas yeah. these one-off projects usually were not in their budget. They had to scramble to get the money to do these one-off projects. They weren't really that happy about it because it's a sunk cost. And then when I was looking at our revenue, I realized at some point that given the staff that we had at the time for digital marketing and the fact that digital marketing was a recurring service that came right. with recurring so revenue. Fixed. You build a website and then that client's gone, but marketing, that's a client. That's a subscription-based, essentially subscription-like service. I, I, clearly, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you know, as, as a business owner, it, it gets really tiring to chase those projects over and over and over again. Whereas with this recurring service and recurring revenue, it's like, okay, great. We can maybe take the, the focus off of selling so that we can put more focus on servicing, which is exactly what clients want. They don't want to be right. sold. They want to be serviced. So it's, it's a much better model for us. I think it's the, uh, it, it's just what all businesses should probably try to aspire to is to try to get that recurring service and recurring revenue because it aligns your interests with your clients' interests. So the first big challenge for me and probably 
one of the biggest decisions that I made in business was to hire my first employee. It was, um, it was scary because I knew that I could fend for myself. Um, and I, I, I didn't know what was coming in the future and I had to really, um, just kind of go for it. So what happened was I, I I knew I wanted to do this. I built up the business and and then I got to a point where I was working, of course, like nonstop. And then I got another big show at the time though, right? One man show. It was Eric. That was the the business. Okay. It was Eric LLC. Gotcha. Yeah. And and so I, I knew that I needed to hire a second person. And, and then I, so I kept bidding on projects and I got another big project that was going to take me full time, like four to six months. And I was like, all right, this is the time, but I could only see about six months into the future. I interviewed, I found someone I really liked her. And then I, I remember going home and talking to my wife and saying, I want to hire this employee and she will get paid every two weeks. There's no doubt about that. I will ensure she gets paid. The only question is. Is there going to be enough left over for me? Gotcha. And, and so we, you know, we together and uh, decided that I should hire this employee. I did, it worked out great. And what I discovered is that by increasing the supply, if you will, of my services, actually demand increased. It was really odd, but the more capacity that I had, all of a sudden the more opportunities came to me. And I don't know if that was, um, you know, just fate a timing or maybe the way that I was communicating to the world that we could do Let more me throw a theory at you, Eric. I have a theory. This is another theory. And I think you backed into this too. And we've seen it at, at our, in our practice, right? So as soon as you, the salesperson, the Eric LLC of array digital at the time, as soon as you had somebody to do some of the work, your ability to sell yeah. or to attain more work was multiplied almost infinitely because you suddenly had a, another Eric to do the work that you were doing. And it kind of works like that, right? And I hear this from small businesses all the time, even businesses with 20 people, adding one more person, they can't always, they don't always want to hire ahead of the need. They try to hire within the need and that stymies, I think it stifles the business growth, but it's a risk, right? And there's, and it's, it's, so it worked for you and that's fantastic. But I think that's one of the like, they always talk about entrepreneurship seminars and I'm on a board at my school WNL. We have an entrepreneurship advisory board, but we always talk about taking the leap. We always have a session on yeah. that. And I feel like for you, it wasn't starting the business. Taking the leap was hiring an employee and becoming yeah. a, a you know more than Eric LLC, becoming a Ray. Now you have a partner and you have more employees and you've got a team and you know. So anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you, but my theory is that that's what happened. You suddenly you are the center, you are the the face and voice of this, and you had bandwidth. So I, I think you're absolutely right. At the time, it's one of those things where you're like, well, for me, I, I, I was still working in the business, right? So it's not like I had, yeah. oh, all this time to go sell. But I had more time to sell. I just didn't have a ton of time to go sell and do the other things, but I had more time all of a sudden, that made a big, big difference. So that, that for how me was- feel? Like in your belly, like how did it feel when you were, making that when you when you're like okay i'm gonna offer you this job like, it was, was scary as hell it was scary right because like i what said i scared I, about it though right like so just asking this you know, so logically we've got our lizard brain that's like oh my god oh my god but in reality as a business owner tell me what yeah. what what facts were scary about that for you like was it because you could i mean let's be you could fire her if you wanted to not you know it's not nice sure. but 
finish the job six months in. Okay, well, you know, I, I don't have any more work. I got to let you go. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, not a great way to be as a person. But what what scared you? When I went into business for myself, I was betting on myself. So I had confidence that I could do the work. Okay. And I had confidence that I could go get the work. I had, I had confidence that I could pull it off. But the moment that I brought someone else into it, I was immediately responsible for someone else's not only paycheck, but their career, right? So I, I had yeah. to make sure that this person got the things that they needed and they could advance their career and go off and do great things after they were with me. So I didn't want to, I certainly did not want to hire someone full time as an employee and then fire them because right. that would be a huge failure. But so, so there was a responsibility that was new and, and I didn't have the ability to see out into the future beyond that big project that I told you about. Right. Yep. And so we didn't have any kind of recurring services, any kind of recurring revenue at the time. It was all project based. And so now I had I just doubled my responsibility, me and my family and her and her family. So yeah. it was it was a big, big undertaking. But the big lesson learned for us was at the time we knew that doing nothing and just hoping for the best is one what a lot of business owners do and two was the riskiest thing that we could do. We needed to take actually less risk by making a big pivot in the services that we offered. Okay, so so your major, I think there's a couple pieces of advice wrapped up in there. I think the first piece is don't just hope that your business will do well. Hope is not an answer, hope is not a solution. Two is take an affirmative and I think the way you're putting it, a very considered step. I mean, you were very intentional about what you moved into. It aligned with what you did, but it was a different, it, it, it took the skills that you had, the people that you had and redirected them. So you didn't have to retool your entire company. You just redirected the focus of the customer base and what you were providing. I guess I take away being, don't hope for success and be flexible. Yeah. Uh, and be considered when you're flexible. We needed to come in and kind of educate the marketplace in terms of what, you know, sort of a new way to approach these types of things is. And we knew that, that would, there'd be some reluctance there, particularly when you're sitting with lawyers, and, you know, who bill by the hour and you're telling them that I can make you more efficient and I can make you go faster and I can make you. So there, there's some, some kind of philosophical differences there. But we, we faced some of those headwinds. And I think that what we did was effectively was to kind of just really lay out from pure ROI perspective how these things can ultimately lift you and, and lift your firm um, by going more efficiently and, and by doing things a little smarter and making better decisions faster and that kind of thing. Um, you really separate yourself from your competition and you really deliver an amazing experience for your clients. So we always kind of pointed to that as the reason that you really should sort of embrace a new approach to technology and process and things like that. That was very hard at first. And that was, you know, we kind of came out maybe a little too cocky and just said, this is, this is plainly obvious. And we probably underestimated a little bit of the, we've always done it that way, safety that, you know, I think right. lawyers kind of currently fall back to. So that took a little little doing and it took it took really some success with clients and a lot of kind of uh, yelling from the mountaintops around um, uh, and, and seeing the client's success as well. We saw our clients, we, we measured uh, our, the growth of our clients and how they were ex you know, exceeding their goals in particular areas, be it revenue or practice area expansion or whatever their metrics were. We really helped them kind of measure that. Um, so that was that was difficult and it took us a bit to get over on a tactical side. God, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Well, no, so your challenge, it sounds like, was 
lawyers' personalities and kind of the industry view of new technology or change, right? Because it's it's really hard. I mean, we have 80-something lawyers here, and especially lawyers who started practicing, I don't know, I started practicing in the 90s. But that then or before, it's even lawyers from the 2000s. It's hard to get millennials to move off of what law firms have always done, which is insane to me. It doesn't even make sense that that's the thing. You said what you did is you you came up with a sales strategy, but how did you actually, and I understand showing them ROI and marketing, but I, I have found it well nigh impossible, even if I get a lawyer to nod his head and say, okay, I understand what you're saying to me. But I found it almost impossible for a lawyer to say, okay, but I'm gonna go ahead and change what I'm doing. How did you make them actually change what they're doing? I'm gonna spend money on something I've never seen before and don't really understand and change what I'm doing. I mean, to me, it's the height of insanity. And I've been trying to do that at my law firm for 15 years and we, we do make strides, but it takes yeah. years. So mm -hmm. what, what's your secret sauce? Change management is something we literally talk about every single day without question. Um, and it's, and it's a, you know, it's obviously a hot topic and it's an important one. There's a couple things. One is, you know, I have this whole philosophy around sort of bottom up and top down. It's not that novel. But the whole idea is that it, it has to make sense for literally every level of, of a person at in every capacity at, at, a, at a law firm. You have to be able to demonstrate there. to them yep. just physically, this is what's going, you're going to be able to do. You have to show them that if this is your tasks for the day, here's how it's laid out. Here's how it correlates to your calendar. Here's how it correlates to documents that are associated with it. And you have to really show them that this is going to literally put time back in your day and on items that you're doing to, today that take time and frankly, don't require much expertise. So that automation and standardization that I mentioned in the last piece, that's very important. You have to show every, everyone how that happens. So that's kind of the bottom up philosophy. And then top down is, is, is what it is. I mean, it's really getting executive buy-in to say that this is gonna drive the right types of behaviors for our firm. This is going to um, get, deliver us the types of results we want and we're gonna do it. And because I found that if you really don't have both, it is very, very hard to, to actually successfully do that. And the other sort of piece I'll throw in there is that you have to find champions. You have to find, you know, call it with each, ideally within each department, um, you have to find someone that's gonna be that person to wave the banner and become a super user because they're the ones that are gonna go, hey dude, check it out. Like watch what I can do. And they're gonna show right. somebody. And they're gonna go, oh, how did you, like, you can see that, you can, you can get predictive components about your case and how long it should take and how much it should cost. And like, if they start seeing that and they go, holy, you know, holy cow, I, I want that too. So that that actually happens and we see that, you know, the those best practices, which is an overused term, but we see that happen at firms and that's, that's when it really catches fire. That and the reporting piece where you can really start seeing People are competitive by nature. You can start seeing how you, you're compared to other folks within the firm or, the, or or your percentage of completion with your clients, things like that. There's an inherent sort of a response to that where people just want to do better and then they, they tend to kind of dive in more on the technology itself. So not easy. I would totally agree with you from, from that perspective, but there are ways that you can do it effectively. You really, really, really need to leave your ego at the door. And I know that it's such an easy sort of cliche thing to say, the, the senior leadership at Litify, I think, has done a really good job of, of being very mission oriented and, and leaving their sort of own personal, you know, egos at the door and, and, and saying, OK, you know, I have blind spots there. These are kind of what the, I think they are. I, these are what I think your blind spots are. Let's sort of, you know, you know, trade off each other and understand what we can do, and what we can accomplish and not be super sensitive around, you know, uh, I think I should be doing that versus you. and just getting caught in that sort of mess or that trap that we all kind of sometimes get stuck in where it's, 
you know, you feel that you can do a better job than somebody else at something. So you're going to kind of stick your nose in there, and particularly as a founder of the business yeah. where it's like you have this sort of sense of, of um, protectiveness around everything that's going on. And you, you know, and you have to legitimately be able to kind of put that trust out on the edge and have folks do their job and, and not be a control freak and things like that. And it's um, it's very difficult. And, and I think a lot of that really does come down to ego. And if you have that ability to sort of trust the folks you're with, be realistic about the progress. And thankfully for us, you know, we've had many trials and tribulations, but it's been pretty much up and to the right consistently. But yeah, the, the ego piece is, is something that, like I said, I still challenge, I still have a challenge with at times, but um, once you sort of really learned that as, as a leadership team, it helped us quite a bit. So that, that would be one for sure. Just experientially, we obviously have a bunch of lawyers trying to run a law firm and uh, you probably see this every day. There are a few egos sometimes maybe occasionally, maybe one or two lawyers on earth have an ego. We made the conscious decision here to have lawyers not run the law firm. And it's really hard for lawyers not to do that. But I think this kind of goes to what you did with Litify. Once you show them they can make more money, not trying to decide where desks go, right? For example, just connecting with you here on that, it was easier. So once you showed them the value and, and we, the other thing we did that was interesting, and I don't know if you guys did this, we did personality tests for the leadership team. Like who's, uh, you know, um, outgoing and who's reserved and who's more likely to, I don't forget what the, they had all these ABC. We, we got yeah. these personality test results back and we kind of collated them and everybody had a different personality. I imagine Terry, that you're not in charge of project management or micro micro details, right? I just imagine this based you're on you're spot on Tom, you're spot on. Right. Yes. <laughs> and so I, can, I mean, I don't know that you need a test to do this. You can probably just do it talking to somebody, but I, no. I feel like that's a pretty pretty salient point that you made, leaving your ego at the door and, and giving things out, out to other people. So yeah. sorry, I just wanted to jump in. I thought that was really interesting because I like the way you put that, leave your ego at the yeah. door. And that's a challenging thing in every industry, every business, especially for founders. Like this is mine, I did this. That Siggy's yeah. yogurt guy is now on his own commercials. And I'm like, he's pretty background, but now, you know, I don't know, kind of a weird yeah. choice. I don't know. I was like- <laughs> It's a little weird. <laughs> and I'll, I'll riff off one thing you said there, which is, you know, like how, how do you actually kind of embrace the personalities of, of the different people in the business and kind of coming to terms with that is, is can be tough. Um, and we, we had to do that. And we really, it's great to see this, by the way, in your industry where we're seeing more and more, more firms specifically that are, ha they have a formal CEO, CIO, COO, uh, a business structure that's being put in place. That is like for us, when we, even six years ago, we only saw it kind of randomly. And now yeah. we're seeing more and more with the firms that we're dealing with. We love it. We absolutely love it because it's perfectly well, it makes sense. Our, it makes sense. And for us, it's like, you know, from a traditional buying perspective, as much as I like to walk into a law firm and find someone whose name on a door, convince them over, you know, a great steak dinner and have them buy like my that. stuff. You do yeah, that. I mean, that's kind of cool once in a while. But, um, you know, no, the reality is the fact that we were saying about adoption and change management. It's way better when you can get sort of buy in through a formal business structure and how to. Yeah deploy and all that stuff. Anyway, but yeah, no, I think we're both on the same page there. The second thing that I would bring up, and this is maybe a little more kind of severe, but it's 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 true. Um, you know, I had a, a boss told me years ago, you know, you, you hire fast and you fire faster. And that sounds a little draconian, particularly in the day and age now when we're really trying to empower our people and understand their differences and really be sympathetic about that. And we are. I think Litify does a fairly good job of that. But at the same time, like, you could bring a duck to the top of the mountain, you throw it off, it's still gonna splat, it's a duck, right? It's, you, right. you can't, sometimes you really, 
as much as you want to believe in someone's ability to do something and really kind of, you know, empower them and educate them and they just can't do it, you have to really, I think, be realistic with yourself. And, and perhaps there, there's a better job for them at Litify, or perhaps it's just, you know, not the right type of fit for them as a business. And I think recognizing that and being very, very honest with ourselves, you know, ourselves and ourselves as a group is important. And, you know, again, we all struggle with that because I think we want to inherently believe in somebody. We want to give people second and third chances. But for us, being a kind of fast-paced, fast-growing technology firm with kind of yeah. a bunch of asses, you know, and like we hard-working, hard-playing kind of people where it's like, you know, if you're not going to really fit that mold or you just kind of can't keep up, I think it's better to recognize that sooner than later. So that's um, kind of the Jack, a riff on Jack Welch's hire slow, fire fast, or fire fast, hire slow. Like, I mean, this day and age in COVID, yeah, you've got to hire fast because people are taking the next job. It's insane. The labor market with you there. I kind of, so, so, so far I've got check your ego at the door and then throw the ducks off the mountain as fast as you can. Is that the end? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Right. Yeah. See if they can fly, see if they can fly. And if they cannot, then, you know, it's probably yeah. time to move on or throw, know, throw, throw the bird off the mountain and see if it's a duck or a swallow or whatever. <laughs> see if it flies. Yeah. It's yeah. a good metaphor. The best advice I would say is go for it. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of failure. You know, there's no guarantee that you're going to be successful, but if there's an application process and you're ready to go for it, put together the best application you can, put together the best team you can, make sure you have a good lawyer on your team and make so sure. Barney <laughs> yes. Use Barney Goodman. Good lawyer. Good lawyer. Through a lot. He helped us, uh, you know, just real quick. He helped us with all of our real estate transactions in Virginia, four or five of them. He helped us negotiate a buyout from um, some of our partners in the in the Virginia license. And most importantly, he helped us secure a $10 million line of credit. It got us through a really tough time. So uh, your law firm's been tremendous. So thank you for that. And I'm not just here to plug the law firm. I'm here to give you advice. <laughs> I would say yeah. don't, don't be afraid of change. And I think that I started in the cannabis space in 2014. So yeah. there are challenges that I had that you're not gonna have. By the same token, I have some advantages that you don't have. I'm five years ahead of you in all this. And, um, you know, I think the financing has become a little bit easier. I could talk about that a little more. If you're interested in getting into the space, there's a lot of opportunity and I would just say, go for it. Taking all of these inventions and their context and the changes in how people are innovating, what does it say to you or what are your thoughts, Rob Greenspoon, in the study of science and technology about how the world has changed and where we are today and the importance of patents uh, just in any space. Well, look, I'm an optimist and, and the data that I look at to give my optimistic forecast is the increase in the number of patents per person, no matter how you slice it. Um, sure, the US, one could say through one of the charts, the US is falling behind by a ratio that's decreasing. US inventors are decreasing in ratio compared to foreign inventors. But, but to me, the real, the real uh, exciting information, the exciting data is the one that, that has the hockey stick up because it shows that we're innovating 
we're thinking, we're solving problems, all of us around the world, we have some intractable problems out there. And I think we need more solutions and we're getting more solutions all the time. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the futurists out there I've read tell you that uh, we do have a lot of intractable problems, apparently, or seemingly intractable uh, in our society, and innovation will always help us solve those problems. If there are three things that you could say, or two things, or a couple pieces of advice you could give to somebody who's looking to do more legal writing, to do more journalism, I guess, if you will, or I don't whatever you want to call the profession that you're in, I guess it's legal journalism. Um, what advice would you give? What are the things that, that have been kind of touchstones or, or your North Star? Well, you know, it's it's really helpful to, to not be afraid of being foolish. There's an interesting pivot that takes place when you go from practicing the law to reporting on the law. In the practice of law, a person attempts to build a degree of authority uh, in, in the area in which they practice. As a journalist, it's, often, it's sometimes a hindrance if I know too much. I must ask some foolish questions, right? I must approach things from a, a, a place of ignorance in order to elicit the statements uh, that I need from my source yeah, in yeah, order to tell the sense. story. It can be humiliating sometimes <laughs> because I, I speak to very bright people about the things that they are best at. I often do have to ask them exactly the wrong question, uh, uh, make exactly the mistake that everybody's making so that I can be corrected so that that correction can be part of the story that I tell. Well, uh, you get to tell the story so you can make yourself, you don't have to make yourself look like you asked a foolish question. You can make it look like a wise question at the end, I suppose, right? And, and, and hopefully I'll mostly disappear in the end. One of the nice things that I like, you, you know, lawyering can be very performative. And I have a performative aspect to my personality, but I, I very much like the in the shadows aspect of journalism. I get to fade into the background and in my place come the words of the pe smart people that I spoke to and, and some nice, hopefully, bridging language to <laughs> to push things along. And, and, and honestly, hopefully, there's not too much of myself left in the, in the end. As a senior executive, as a manager, um, where you got employees who don't want to come back to work, uh, in, in the, in, at least into the office, um, you know, uh, may not be the first person that said that <laughs> yes. in the last like three months, every day of the week. I, I like, I've heard that from. I have a friend at the EU in Europe, and he's like, "It's just me and six people in the building. Yes. And we just get the junior people to come in. They just won't." But, so but yes, love it. Part of this for me, though, is the challenge because as a federal employee, we have lots of workspace, as you can imagine, in Washington D.C. You know, the FAA has two buildings on Independence Avenue across the street from each other that are hardly occupied. What is our responsibility to the American public to make great use of taxpayer money that went into securing these facilities uh, and making sure that we're getting the best use out of them on behalf of the American people? Or we are deciding that we maybe need to do something else with those facilities. And so, you know, part of this for me 
is looking at what our responsibilities are to the taxpayers and making sure that we're living up to that responsibility. Certainly it is to our employees. I'm uh, in the process of hiring, hopefully, about 100 new employees over the next two to three years. Most of them are going to be young attorneys uh, coming into the federal government for the first time, or at least into the FAA for the first time. There is a significant uh, learning curve that needs to happen uh, because when you come into the FAA, you learn that there's not a lot of things that are intuitive. You have to be around, you have to, to learn it from others, you have to collaborate more. And if you don't, then it's really slows down the process. And you know, in our line of work, slowing down the process means maybe slowing down safety and that puts everybody at risk and we don't want to do that ever. So we have to kind of walk this very fine line. You know, when during the pandemic, none of the air traffic controllers of which we have a substantial, I say about uh, 15, 20,000 employees at the FAA are air traffic controllers. They could not work from home. <laughs> they had to actually work in the air traffic control towers during the pandemic. And so when I was trying to decide what, you know, the legal um, team's policy was going to be for coming back to work, I had it in the back of my head, you know, what, what would I tell these air traffic controllers who had to go in every single day despite and face down the challenges of, you know, a, a deadly pandemic, um, all in the interest of serving our taxpayers and ensuring that they had safe passage if they were flying around the country because there were people who were flying around the country because they had to. I tried to make sure that, you know, I was trying to be fair both to the larger picture about what was going on, but to those younger, younger employees who need to have, you know, some face time with me or other senior leaders who actually learn around the proverbial water cooler, what's going on, and then decide, oh, you know, I really would like to kind of get involved in that because we're not having those kinds of conversations on Zoom or Teams meetings. We're not sitting around after meetings and, and having a, uh, you know, a, a discussion about maybe some things that didn't come up during that meeting that, you know, upon further reflection, now we're sort of maybe starting to have uh, that's that's now starting to come out, and those young people aren't sitting around learning from you know these these older, more experienced attorneys in terms of how to interact, how to manage, um, you know, how to suss out what their clients are really looking for, you know, and how to address those things. So, you know, so you have both of those uh, of those of those things. So that's one example. Uh, the second, I was at um, Mark, to ask on that. Yeah. Did you ever tell when somebody says? Hey, I just don't want to come in, especially the younger people. We found that. Do you just say, look, this is the FAA. That doesn't fly here. Yeah, I, well, I, I could have said that, but no, I, you know, the way no, I tried to, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's probably true, but, uh, yeah, but the way I tried to couch it, you know, so I, I made a rule that, you know, non-managers had to come in two days a week. Managers had to come in three days a week. Um, and, you know, you would have thought that I had, you know, <laughs> made a slur about somebody's mother but you know with the anger that was yeah. yeah how did that work out um but ultimately you know i i tried to be very forthcoming about why i thought it was at the end of the day going to be better you know if you had asked me before the pandemic whether i thought teleworking was good you know from a productivity standpoint etc you know 
most people in this country would have probably said no, you know, because we're not in Silicon Valley, which has been pioneering on teleworking for a very long time. But that's right. not been the experience of the rest of the country. I think what the pandemic showed is that, yes, we can make it work uh, and we can make it work relatively well. But there are still gaps in terms of how we need to work and collaborate and get the most efficient and effective um, uh, uh, ness out of our, our employees and our work experience. And, and as managers, we have responsibilities to meet those two and, 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 and to bring them out. Uh, and you can't do that solely from a, a Zoom meeting. As we said last week, Mark's going to share with us his closing remarks, his pieces of advice about life, business, and everything in between. One is I'm with a plan. <laughs> um, you would think that that would just be an obvious thing, but for a lot of us, um, it isn't because you feel like you are in a lot of control over your career because you know, it depends on what your boss wants you to do. It depends on, you know, the you know where you're located. It, you know, there are a lot of factors, but there are some things you do control. You know, having your mind's eye where you want to be 20 to 25 years from now, if it's general counsel, CEO, chief marketing officer, chief librarian, whatever it is. And then from there, what are the component pieces that you need in order to be competitive in your career 20 to 25 years from now when you're eligible to be considered for that role because you will have been in this industry or in this this practice for 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 a long time. You know, people are going to be looking to you for sage wisdom. Um, uh, you know, some of us are already at that stage. Uh, sticking to something that I know. If you want to be general counsel, okay, well, I'm going to need to know something about labor and employment. I'm going to need to know something about litigation. I'm going to need to know something about corporate governance. You know, all these all these like component pieces. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. So, uh, you know, managing people. Yeah. So you have all, all, all of these different component pieces. Okay, now I need to build steps to get to where I want to be 20 to 25 years from now just to be competitive. So I tell them, think about your career in five-year increments and then figure out whether you need all five years to, to do something. Maybe you need five years of labor and employment experience. Uh, maybe you need, um, you know, maybe instead, because you're more interested in a technological company, maybe you might need more you know, five to seven years of intellectual property experience, because that's going to be more important for the type of industry that you're going into uh, in order to establish your career um, and your footprint within that industry. Whatever it is, figure out in five-year increments what you need. Sometimes you may only need to stay for a couple of years. Sometimes you may need to stay for seven. Five is not you know, hard and fast, but it's, it, it can flex one way or the other. You have to figure out whether you're ready for the next um, part of or whatever that next step is. And then don't be afraid to take it. Don't be afraid to pursue it. And don't be afraid to leave your current employer if that's what it takes in order for you to get it. A lot of people are tend to be, um, I think, more beholden to their 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 current or former companies. You know, I'm a case in point. I absolutely love Rolls Royce. My experience at Rolls Royce was absolutely perfect. You know, I absolutely love working with Saab. Um, the work was great. My colleagues were great. I worked for a great uh, CEO. Um, but I had in my mind's eye where I wanted to be. Um, you know, in terms of my career at the end of it, what my narrative, what my legacy was going to be. And I was pursuing that. And 
if I felt like I needed to leave, which obviously in this case I did, um, and, and you know, and, and not to mention an amazing opportunity sort of came up uh, as well, then you know, take that opportunity to do what you feel like you need to do in order to get to where your next career is. So that's that's step number career advice number one. Career advice one: come with a plan and execute on the plan. Don't be afraid to be in the plan. And Senator Nichols, President Nichols, I, I don't know. What, yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, it would be divorced Nichols. Divorced President Nichols. But this, but the second, the second piece of advice I got, um, I was reading Ken Chenault, who is the former uh, CEO of American Express, uh, gave an interview that I read early on in my career um, that, that still resonates with me today. It, you know, he was asked how he got to be CEO, the first African American CEO of of American Express. And, you know, one of the responses he gave, the one, at least the one that sort of registered with me the most, was he said, I took the jobs that nobody else wanted, right? And I made them successful. And so, of course, somebody said, well, why would you do the jobs that nobody wanted? And he said, well, if I totally screwed up, nobody was expecting anything from me anyway, because it was going nowhere and everybody knew it. If I changed it, which more often than not I was able to do and make it really successful, that I was going to get on everybody's radar, right? And so that was part of you know the way I sort of approach my career is I'm going to do the jobs that maybe not a lot of people would want to do, um, or that would be more challenging because of the environment or what have you. Uh, and hopefully, um, you know, as, as I think my career is, has borne out, I was fortunate enough to be relatively successful in, in each of those endeavors. And the more I became more successful in those endeavors, the more it started to weave a strand uh, and a narrative of who I was and how successful I was at doing uh, the practice of law and got other people's attention or it was easier to get other people's attention. Uh, including the, uh, you know, all the way to the White House. So that's the second piece of advice is, you know, maybe take, it, take a chance on yourself. What's that? Take Sorry. a chance on yourself and do the take job that maybe nobody else wants and make it and make it a success because that's the easiest way to get on somebody's radar screen in my, in my experience. That's fantastic. And then, and I will tell you, we've done, I don't know, 50 or a hundred of these interviews. Nobody's ever said that piece of advice. That's a great, you know, I've heard take the leap, have confidence in yourself, but do the jobs that nobody wants is such an interesting and like smart approach. It makes sense when the way you put it, but that's fantastic. Sorry, and you had a third? In, in fairness, it's the way Ken put it, but uh, you, know, Ken, you know, Ken was immensely successful at it. So I figured, you know, he had to be onto something. Highest form of flattery, right? As they say, so. So um, you had a third one, Mark. Sorry to interrupt. No, and, and and the third piece of fun is uh, third piece of advice is have fun. Um, you know, we do we spend a lot of time doing what we do in order to become the experts that we hope that people will see us as. Uh, and and there's a level of seriousness that comes seriousness of purpose that comes with with doing that and creating that legacy. But if you're not having fun doing it you're dreading getting up every morning to have to go into a job that you know you absolutely hate well then that's also a part of your legacy <laughs> you have a lot more control over that 
um, than, than I think sometimes people realize. And so, you know, it, it, it may be simple, um, but sometimes we, some, we sometimes overlook the simple. Have fun at what you do. And if you're not having fun, it's time to change. Great. So if I could summarize the Mark Nichols key to, to life success, have a plan and faith in yourself to do it. Take the jobs that nobody wants and make sure that you have fun when you do your job. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and check out our website at blackletterstudios.com.